As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first meet someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Today's first passage comes from Genesis 2, 1 through 17. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Kishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Kihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Second passage is from Hebrews 4 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day of his, in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, 
sang through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. All right, kids, you are dismissed to worship kids style at this time. If you want to head on out, kids, um, four and up, and if your kids, you have kids under four, they are welcome to stay. Um, are there, there's a nursery care available for them, and kids are, of course, welcome to stay with you as well during this time. But we are finishing up our ser- sermon series on Genesis 1 and 2 this week. Although, like we mentioned last week, we changed the order a little bit because of how we were addressing some things. But let's pray as we turn to God's word. God and Father, pray that you would be with us now as we hear from your word. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under its teaching. Give us the hope of the good news of Jesus. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Amen. All right. So there is kind of an obvious sermon from Genesis 2, 1 through 17 that I chose not to preach. Um, because it has some themes that we've touched on before. We'll mention that a little bit as we go. But instead, before we can kind of dig into this text, I want to zoom way out for a minute and talk about a kind of big idea and a big problem that I think a lot of us have in how we talk about Christianity. Um, If you ask people, what is Christianity, right? What does Christianity mean? You get lots of answers in our world. We've said that before. Sometimes people, some people will give you moral answers, right? They'll say, well, it's about avoiding certain sins, like, you know, I don't know, certain sexual sins or greed. Or um, maybe if you're from an older generation, it's not even those sorts of things. It's just cultural stuff, right? Like it's not playing cards or dancing or whatever, but moral stuff. Some people will talk about religious activities, like going to church or um, believing the Bible or praying. And some people might even give sort of spiritual answers that Christianity means believing in God or inviting Jesus into your heart. You get lots of answers if you ask people that. And all of those answers are saying things, well, except the cards and dancing part, but all of the rest of those answers are saying things that are legitimately a part of Christianity in the Bible, right? But um, what all of those answers have in common is that they're focused on one specific topic, which is what we do. Right? When you ask people, what does Christianity mean, the answers they give are almost always lists of things we are supposed to do. Um, and there's a problem with that. In the Bible, we are warned against two errors. There are two great villains to the spiritual life in Scripture. The first of those errors is what I'm going to call rebellion in this sermon. All right? One way that we can go wrong in the Bible is by kind of rebelling against God and doing immoral irreligious things. And Christianity does challenge rebellion. That is one way we can go wrong. And in a lot of ways, that list of what to do is about this first issue, right? It's all about these are the ways that you can rebel against God by not doing those things. But 
the issue even there is that simply telling people what not to do does not make them not do it, right? If you have ever had a teenager, you know that just telling them that they're not supposed to do something does not cause them not to do it. And in fact, I think Christians lose sight of that a lot. I mean, I think about, we hear these arguments about, like, putting the Ten Commandments up in courthouses, and I am not commenting on that in terms of the political questions, but I hear Christians say, like, if we did that, then people would behave morally, right? Then they would follow the Ten Commandments, and I'm always like, I, like, I know God's commands, and I sin all the time, right? Just knowing the rules doesn't really even fix rebellion. And then the other problem is that in Scripture, there's a second error, a second villain to Christianity, and that is what I'm going to call in this sermon religion. Not religion in the proper, true religion, biblical sense, but in the worldly sense. It's the error of the Pharisees. It's the error of the church in Galatia. Paul in Galatians basically says that you are being religious in a way that makes you in danger of losing Jesus. And the issue with religion is that those people do know the stuff that they're supposed to do, and they're at least sort of doing it. Now, even, in, even there, we need to be careful, because in religion, a lot of times people pick and choose which things, right? They tend to focus on the kind of obvious external things and not as much on maybe like pride or greed or these things that it's really hard to, to not see in our hearts. But a religion is about celebrating what to do, right? Still, at root. That's the thing that it's aiming for. And if we define Christianity in terms of religion, right, or in terms of what to do, we end up encouraging that error. Um, and that's a serious error in Scripture. If you read Matthew 23, for example, which is Jesus' seven woes, it's the kind of scariest, most judgment-filled Jesus ever gets in his ministry. It's religious people, not rebellious people, that that's directed at. So we have an issue then, right? If we define Christianity in terms of what to do, we're not actually discouraging people from falling into those wrong ways of thinking. And in fact, we may be encouraging them. And so take that idea, have that in your head. That's the question we're going to try to answer. But to answer that question, we're going to now move into Genesis 2. And while we're going to get to the answer in a minute, the place we have to start in Genesis 2 is with Adam's work. It's with Adam's work that he's given in the garden. Now just to situate us, in Genesis 1, we get the story of creation. It's put in the structure of these six days. And at the beginning of Genesis 2, we have this seventh day. And we're going to come back to that seventh day. But after that, what sort of happens is it's like we shift back and zoom in on that sixth day kind of idea when God creates Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 2, we get that story. So start in verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, first of all, it's describing this place. It's important to say when it talks about land here, it doesn't mean earth, because God's already created plants, all right? And, you know, I mean, that's clear. But what it's saying, it's describing a desert, right? It's saying that God goes to this wilderness, this desert, and that's where he's forming Adam. And there's already a hint of why that's important, why God's making Adam in the desert at the end which is that the reason it's a desert, it says, is that there's no human beings yet to work it and, um, and turn it into something else. All right, then verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now that very famous picture of our creation is really meant to tell us two things at once. One, that's supposed to talk about our humility, right? We human beings are not made from stardust or 
dragon blood or, you know, something cool were made from the dirt. Um, And so that's supposed to teach us something about our standing before God. But at the same time, it is also speaking to us of God's intimacy and care for us, right? God doesn't just speak human beings into existence the way he seemed to the rest of the animals in Genesis 1, where first he forms them with his hands, and then he bends down and breathes life into humanity, which that image is almost like CPR or something. And if you've seen one of like those thousand comedy movies, right? Like that's an intimate thing that's happening in that moment. And then here's what happens next. God plants Eden and causes it to grow up and flourish. And then he leads Adam out of the wilderness and into the Garden of Eden. And then in verse 15, it says this. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So first of all, to be clear about that, Adam and after God makes Eve, it's the same for her. They have a job to do in the Garden of Eden, right? Like people often picture the Garden of Eden as if it's just like, like vacation. You know, they're just like hanging in hammocks between the trees, sipping pina coladas and chilling. But that's not at all the image of the Garden of Eden that Scripture gives. In Eden, in Scripture, um, Adam and Eve are called to be manual laborers, basically. They're farmers, right? And they're meant to take care of the garden. And when you take that, that language of working it and keeping it, and then you combine that with how a little earlier we saw how the desert is the desert because God, because there's not yet human beings there to keep it, And back in Genesis 1, with the fact that God tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, you actually get the idea of Genesis 1 and 2 for humanity, which is that Adam's job, along with he and Eve's descendants, is to spread out into the world and work the world and essentially spread Eden outward. That's what they're on earth to do. That that peace and flourishing and bounty of the Garden of Eden ultimately is meant to spread out across the earth, all right? So that's Adam's work, and that's the foundation of the what-to-do piece of Christianity. We mentioned that those what-to-do answers people give, they aren't like, they aren't what the heart of Christianity is, but they're true, right? We do have commands that we're supposed to follow and a job we're supposed to do, and this is the foundation of that. When the Bible calls us to do good works, it's really meant to kind of evoke that underlying mission of Adam, to be out in the world, working it and caring for it in a way that brings blessing and peace and, you know, and flourishing to creation. That's important to recognize because it is what defines our purpose in life. That's what we're supposed to be about. And that's also important because that helps us understand why rebellion is a problem. A lot of times we talk about sin and not following God's will as if it's just sort of arbitrary. But the idea in Genesis is that sin is really the opposite of that mission. That if what Adam is supposed to be doing is moving out into the world, bringing, flourishing, and Eden outward, that sin, in a sense, is instead about the wilderness spreading instead of the garden. It's about the world getting more broken and more barren and less, um, less full of blessing. So humanity was created to bless other people in the world and spread God's blessing and reign outward through their work. That is a central idea of Genesis 2, but it's not the only one, and this is where I think we actually start to see the solution to that question. So that's Adam's work. That's the what-to-do part of Christianity. But here's what I want us to think about, all right? If that's one question we can ask, there are two other questions that I think are more essential for us as Christians to ask first, and that is before we just obsess about what to do, 
we need to ask, how do we do it, and why do we do it? How do we do it, and why? And Genesis 2 actually answers those questions as well in a way that helps solve that problem that we mentioned. First of all, how do we do it? Well, in Genesis 2, the answer that we get is God's provision. Adam's work happens in the context of God's prior provision. Start reading in verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Okay, so God makes Adam out in the wilderness, in the desert, and ultimately there's a sense in which Adam and humanity's mission extends out into the desert. But in between, God takes Adam and he puts him in this garden of Eden. And importantly, this is a garden that God plants and causes to be full of everything Adam needs, right? That it is full of beauty. You have the trees that are pleasing to the eye, and it's full of sustenance, everything that's good to eat. So God plants that garden, and also in Genesis 2, God sustains it. In verse 10, it tells us that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Those four rivers are the primary rivers that are spread across the, the ancient Near East, right? So like each of the big civilizations kind of grew life and sustenance from that river. And so it's trying to say that God causes this river to water the garden. God's providing that sustenance for Eden and then outflowing from that to the world. Or again, if you read verse 15 but keep going, it says, The Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Here is the thing from that that we need to recognize about Adam's work, and that is that it is fundamentally unlike work in our world. We work the world because otherwise we will starve. We work the world in order to get what we need to live. But in Eden, um, the, the, the order of that is reversed. Adam is already given everything he needs to eat and be sustained and live in the world, right? He is not farming the Garden of Eden because otherwise he's going to starve. Instead, God is giving him everything he needs for life and joy. And then out of that, Adam is being called to work. So the first thing to notice there, how are we supposed to work? How is Adam supposed to work? Answer, by the gracious provision that God has already given us. Adam is not securing blessing for himself in his work. Rather, he is blessed, and out of that place of blessing, he is doing his work. Take that idea that Adam is not securing blessing, but he is blessed, and then it's only after and out of that blessing that he's doing his work. And remember that, okay? We're going to apply that in a minute, but we're going to join it with the other question first. The other question, remember, is why does Adam work? Why is he supposed to work in the garden? And the answer to that is God's rest. Adam's calling to work is supposed to rest in his seeking after God's rest. That one's going to take a little more work for me to show you. Start back in verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works that he had done. All right. So we're hearing about the seventh day and God's rest. And that's supposed to do two different things. One of the things, which is what we're not going to talk about this morning, but it's worth saying, is that this is the foundation for the idea of our call to Sabbath rest. 
one day in seven we're called to set aside for rest and worship and this text is about that in part in verse three that's spelled out it says that god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it god rested from all his work that he had done in creation so god sets apart this day we're called to set it apart that is a true thing and it's worth noting that because some people treat that command of sabbath as if it doesn't apply anymore and the main reason they give for that is that that's somehow changed. That was just for, like, Israel or something. But Genesis 2 makes very clear that God designed the world to work this way so that we would rest one day in seven. That's part of how the world is made. But that's not where we're focusing again. Instead, look at verse 1. And I want us to recognize something else, which is that if you remember when we preached through Genesis 1, there's some weird details, actually, about the seventh day. One is that it is not entirely clear where this day fits in relation to the rest of the story. Like we said, God creates Adam and Eve on the sixth day, and then we read about the seventh day, and then we read about the creation of Adam and Eve, right? And there's not a clear point where the seventh day happens in this story. And in addition, the seventh day is different in how it's recorded from the other six days of creation. Mainly in that there is no morning or evening for it. Every other day, days one through six, you get the morning and God creates and then there's evening and, you know, and then there's the morning of the next day, but there's no mention of morning and evening on the seventh day. And so if you're reading this text, that should make you wonder whether there's something more going on with this idea of God resting. Am I supposed to get more from it than just that, like, there's this example that we should follow? Well, that's where our second reading today from Hebrews 4 comes in. And there is a lot going on in Hebrews 4. But basically, in chapter 3, um, the author of Hebrews is discussing how Moses and Israel in the wilderness failed to enter into the rest of the promised land when they turned away from God. And then he picks up this question of what is that rest? What is, you know, what are we supposed to learn about from them failing to enter in? And so in Hebrews 4, first we're told in verse 1, that since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So he's saying we somehow want to enter into this rest of God. We don't want to be like that first generation of Israelites that rebelled. And then he says, how does that work? Well, verse 2, he says, we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So he says first, the difference between Israel not entering that rest and what we're called to is faith. Hold on to that idea because then he sort of pauses and he goes back to talk about what we just read in Genesis 2. If you look in verse 3, he says, Yet God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somehow he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And so what he's trying to highlight there is sort of that tension that we mentioned, that ambiguity of the seventh day, that in some sense God has already rested and it's done, but in another sense somehow we've yet to enter into the rest of God. We've been missing out on that rest. How? Well, verse 6 he says, Since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, now, pause there, because if you were following along, I think you actually heard that last sentence wrong. Almost everyone, when they read this, they say, what it says is they didn't enter into the rest because of their disobedience. But that's not actually what it says. It says they didn't into the, enter into the rest because they didn't go in, because they simply chose not to go into it. 
And then it says the reason they chose not to go in was their disobedience. All right? Hold that in your brain. I know we're covering a lot here, but this is going to be cool when we get there. Because the author of Hebrews goes on then to say, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God does from his. So the conclusion he seems to draw from Genesis 2 somehow is that our calling is to enter in by resting from our works like God. By that he doesn't mean resting from our works in the sense of not doing good works, but he means resting from our works as the means of entering in. He's saying that there's this way that Israel tried to enter that rested on their works that did not work, and they're called to something else. Now go back to Genesis 2, and let me show you where I think the author of Hebrews is getting that idea. Okay? First, like we said, Adam's work is not like God's work. Adam's work is not like God's work, in that God's work is from nothing, by his own power, forming everything, whereas Adam's work is in this world that God has already created, simply relying on what God has given him to do. And Adam's calling, therefore, is to rest on God's work rather than on his. In the garden, there are two trees. If you look in verse 9, it says that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam is told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 17, But of that tree you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What's going on with that? Well, here's the answer. One of those trees represents God's free offer of life. It represents God's offer to simply enter into his rest. And that's the tree of life, right? I mean, that sounds like a sweet deal, right? You eat of the tree of life, and you enter into life, and you have it. You don't need something else. And then the other tree represents our efforts at autonomy, our efforts to instead do things on our own, by our works. That actually helps explain why it's the knowledge of good and evil that is a problem, right? Some people are like, well, what's, you know, what's the good part doing in there? Isn't it just the evil part that's a problem? But in many ways, what that represents is those two paths we talked about, those two great enemies in Scripture, right? There is the knowledge of evil. It's rebellion. It's just trying to go our own way and in sin kind of serve our appetites. But there's also the knowledge of good by which we can try to do it on our own, right? We can, through our religion, try to earn life. And both of those are wrong because what we are supposed to do is instead simply come to the tree of life and partake of it freely. So that's the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make. In verse 11, when he sums it up, he says, Therefore, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so the disobedience there he's talking about is not simply the disobedience of rebellion. Rather, it is a disobedience of faith. The disobedience for Israel and for Adam is ultimately a disobedience that rests on their refusal to simply trust in God and receive life from him, to receive his rest. And instead, it rests on their desire to do it themselves, whether that means through sinning or whether that means through using their works to try to enter in. So the answer to why do we work as a Christian must be that we work because we have already received God's rest, God's life. Because we have already, apart from those works, been given 
that place of welcome and peace and life with God. Let me try to explain that another way then. If that's the big idea, that maybe you're like, oh, and maybe you're like, so think about it like this. What I'm saying is that often what we do in Christianity is that we confuse the results of the gospel with the gospel. The gospel is the good news, right, of Christianity. And we're going to define it in a minute. But first, what are the results of the gospel? That is all the stuff that we said under what to do, right? They are all the stuff that Christians are called to do. That is religious activities and going to church and worshiping and tithing and being morally obedient to the commands of God and working for the kingdom and helping the poor and seeking to share the good news of Jesus and working for justice and standing for truth and even even having faith and repenting of our sins. Those are all results of the gospel, all right? People constantly define Christianity as those results. And like we said, I get that because all of those things are good, right? (laughs) Like all of those things are meant to be results of the Christian gospel. We shouldn't not do those things. But without the gospel, if we try to have those results, it can actually kill us. Imagine that somebody told you they had invented a pill that would give you superpowers, right? They said, I invented this pill, and if, you know, and this pill, you can like, bullets will bounce off you, and you can jump off of skyscrapers and fly, and you can lift locomotives. Imagine that they told you that, and then they say, all right, so I invented this pill. Now go jump off of a building, you know, like let somebody shoot you, try to, you know, stand in front of a train and lift it up. And you go and do that, but you did not take the pill, (laughs) right? The fact that that pill existed um, would not in any way help you if you didn't take it. And suddenly all these things that that otherwise you could do are going to kill you if you try to do them without it. Trying to have the results of being a superhero without becoming a superhero is just going to put you on the evening news as one of those sad stories. Christianity without the gospel is like that. It is actually harmful (laughs) to people if they try to live it out in two different ways. One is that it can give them false assurance. It can kill us through religion. It can make us think, man, I have worked hard my whole life, and I've gone to church, and I've put money in the plate, and I've done all these good deeds, and so I am good. And someone can have that assurance and go straight to hell without the gospel. Or it can kill us through discouragement and despair. It can lead us to rebellion. In some ways, I think this is what happens to the more self-honest people, but right? They try to do all that, and they try to live good lives and obey God and do all that stuff, and they fail, and they know they fail, and so they just give up on the thing. They're like, I can't live this out. I, you know, I can't possibly do this. All right. So if that's the case, then there's one last question we need to answer, which is what is the gospel, right? <laughs> if we need to not confuse the gospel with its results, what is the gospel? The answer to that is that it is the message of God's work. Not of our works, not of anything about us, but of what God has done. There's a lot of ways to summarize it, but let's just look at Hebrews 4, because we were already there. If you look at Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So Jesus is pictured as this high priest, this kind of mediator go-between between God and human beings whose job is to represent us before God. And he says, Jesus was that to us. 
Um, and he's that in an even truer way, because he's not just some symbolic representative on earth, but Jesus is before God as our representative. And then he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus is our representative before God, and there's two things that are true of him. One is that he is like us in his humanity. He drew near to us. He knows us. He sympathizes with us. But two, and more importantly, he is not like us in that he is without sin. And so instead of being some sinful, failed representative before God, what we have is Jesus and his perfect righteousness and holiness. That is the person who stands before God on our behalf. And therefore, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because we have Jesus as our representative, we can come before God's throne and receive mercy, which means forgiveness for all of the wrong things that we have done, and grace, which means blessings and life that we do not deserve. For in a broader sense, this is the gospel. This is the message of God's work. It is that God, even before Adam sinned, had fixed his love on you and determined to save you and to save us together. And he revealed himself to his people, and he worked and prepared them, and then he came as Jesus Christ. God came as Jesus, and he lived the perfect, righteous, obedient life of good works that all of us fail to live. He lived it. And then he died as that perfect sacrifice so that all of the, the, the rebellion and evil that we've done has been paid for. And he rose again then so that we can have new life in him. And now he reigns and represents us before God and he will return. And what that means is that Jesus paid for all of our rebellion, that none of the guilt of that sin and rebellion is on us, but that Jesus, like, Jesus paid the cost for it and he secured for us all the blessings that we instead try to get in our religion. You don't have to do anything to be blessed and loved and stand righteous before God because Jesus already did all of that and worked it on your behalf. That is the gospel. The gospel is not, um, is not a message about what we're supposed to do, but it's a message of what God has done. Not of our works, but of God's. And, um, and that means that that is the how and the why of true Christianity. Like we said, what to do is true. It's important. But if that gospel, that message about what God has done, that's not how we do it, and that's not why we do it, we've actually missed what Christianity is. One last thing to make clear about that is that um, that means the gospel is also not just something you believe once at the beginning of the Christian life, right? <laughs> like that message of what God has done, that's supposed to be the motivation and the means through which today— I continue to live as a Christian. That's not just this thing you believe that gets you saved and then you do all the good works and, you know, and have to be super religious. But this is what we stand on today. All right. So then let me just spell out as we close what that means. First, how does that make us work? What does that mean for how we work? Well, one, it means that we are free from the desire to justify ourselves, our constant temptation to use God's commands as a way to try to make ourselves righteous, to earn something from him, to prop ourselves up and give us a grounds for boasting. But if the gospel is true, then we, um, we already have all that, right? The message is that you can't prove anything. You can't earn anything. You are God's beloved son or daughter simply because of the work he's done. Two, 
the gospel means that we're free from our failures. We are all messed up people, right? Even as Jesus was at work in us, and even as we're growing in obedience to him, sin has still corrupted us, and we are still in the flesh, and so we will fail. And often, without the gospel, what you do is you either lie to yourself about that fact, because you have to believe that you're righteous enough to get in on your own, or you're destroyed by that fact, because you feel like you're constantly failing and not getting anywhere. But in the gospel, yesterday's failures have no bearing on your calling for today. It does not matter what happened in the past, right? Jesus' call to you comes today and says, you are mine, and you know, you are righteous, you are beloved. Simply stand up today and seek to follow me. And then third, the gospel makes us confident in God's resources. Jesus has secured righteousness for us, and he is at work in his resurrection and reign, growing us to be like him. And that can give us a real sense of confidence as we seek to follow him. I often just feel discouraged, like, man, I can't do this, right? I don't have the strength to do this. And the good news of the gospel is, yeah, you don't. But in Jesus Christ, you are being given the strength by his work that gives us confidence to get up each day and seek to do what we're called to do. So that's the how. And then the why. How does the gospel give us the why for the Christian life? Because experiencing love always transforms the beloved. Experiencing true love always transforms the beloved. One of the things that I think about in parenting these days is that, um, you know, when I think about how to parent kids well and how to raise them to love God and serve the world, I think that when I was younger, my answer would have primarily been about discipline, right? And discipline is a thing that matters. I mean, it's not unimportant. You need it. And you're supposed to, as a parent, sort of be like the embodied representative of the immovable laws of the universe, right? That is a part of parenting. But if that's all you do, you don't actually get kids to flourish in the world. They might be well-behaved out of fear, or they might rebel, but they are not joyful and happy and free people. The way to get them to flourish is by loving them, by holding them when they are hurt, and speaking words of kindness and praise to them, and listening to them, and entering into relationship with them, and communicating to them that they are valued. The longer I have been a parent, the more I have realized that the best parts of my kids, who are still very much sinners and have much to learn, but the best fruit that I've seen in their lives is not the product of just the discipline I've given them, but the best fruit in their lives that I've seen is the product of that love. And the truth is that that is how Christianity is meant to work for us. That before we start thinking about the stuff we're supposed to do and the tasks and the obedience we're supposed to render, what we are called to do is to experience the love of God. To meet with him and to recognize the delight that he feels in us and the work he has done to save us. To experience that love and rest in that each day. And as we do that, we will find that our hearts start to change and that we are beginning to be encouraged to do the things that he calls us to do. That is what Christianity calls us to. We, like Adam, are called to turn from seeking the knowledge of evil in rebellion. And we, like Adam, are called from turning to seek to save ourselves by the knowledge of good in religion. But instead, we, like Adam, are invited to live in the garden of God's provision and partake of the tree of life that he freely offers us in Jesus Christ. 
tree that's now become the cross. And that as we do that, we begin to live lives that are transformed and new. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the work you have done for us in Jesus. I pray you would speak that to our hearts. Help us rejoice in the mercy that we have in him, which is more than all of our sins and more than all of the righteous deeds we can do. Pray that he might be our hope and trust. Pray this in his name. Amen.